All right. Well, I'll go ahead and re-ask that question then as best I understand it, and we'll come back to the agreement on it. Um, the key point is about doing versus non-doing. And that the example of that is the precepts. Yeah. Okay, is this the topic that we're talking about? Yeah. Okay, I, I see those as two different topics. And so let's discuss them differently and see if we can then shove them back into the same box that you grabbed them out of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's take the precepts first. Uh, Precepts fall into three classifications, sort of like um, low, middle, and high class. And what I would mean by that is, is that the precepts by someone who has wrong view will say, oh, I can get away with wrongdoing. I can get away with it. Yeah. Okay. And, so, and so wrong view, ultimately at its worst possibility is, is that I don't know my mom and dad anything. There are no monks or they're, they're just yellow dudes or they're just in yellow robes and they are doing whatever they want to do while we're not watching. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. There's just no wrongdoing anywhere. And so I can go and kill a bunch of animals on that side of the river and come on to this side of the river and kill a whole bunch more animals. The number is like 500. Mm -hmm. But anybody would recognize that if the guys on this side of the river saw you coming over after watching you on the other side of the river, because that's quite a scene to kill 500 animals. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was way off there. I'm not quite sure, but I do know this. Is somebody's going to put a stop to him. That he's not going to be able to do that in the first place. Somebody's going to put a stop to him, and more than likely they will deal with him <clears throat> in the same way that they would deal with him as if he had killed all thousand animals, if we're thinking about 500 on each side of the river. We're, I'll, I'll, on a side point, the word or the number 500 is used often uh -huh. in the suttas. Mm-hmm. And that they have come to understand that that means in that language just a large number in that area, which could be anywhere from 100 to, to 900 or 1,000, okay? Mm -hmm. That that's how they speak at it, because no one back then is going to stand around and count 500 anything. No. <laughs> Mm. Especially if they don't have uh, excellent recording facilities. So at least the people who are going to be counting have to be literate. What's the point otherwise? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but the, the here's the point that we're making is, is that those who have wrong view think that they can get away with anything that there is other than dealing with people who may not like what you're doing, there really is no such thing much as a cause-effect relationship. In fact, that's something that the Buddha actually had to teach 
to people who had not the concept. The concept of cause and effect is deeply buried into our, in the, I mean, it's just the way that we live our lives. But back in the time of the Buddha, uh, things seemed to just happen spontaneous because the people were making that kind of connection. Now that those connections are just part of our culture, we as children pick up the concept of cause and effect. But it looks like that the Buddha had to actually start teaching that, that it wasn't widely understood the way that it is nowadays. And so this is basically what we mean then by people who have wrong view cannot see cause and effect. Okay. And so they just think or they assume that they can get away with anything, which also means that how they feel is more important to them than anything else. And this is what leads to people who have uh, personality disorders. From the narcissist down to the psychopath, all the way down to the sociopath, or whichever one is the more uh, violent. (laughs) But this is, you see where they're coming from now. They can get away with it. And sometimes they're really surprised when the police find they convict them. Mm. So they thought that they could get away with it. Hmm. So this is one's wrong view, and we and if you don't watch out, you'll have a whole culture that way. In fact, that's how culture got started, mm. was because in really, really primitive times, the further back we go, the more barbaric we become. And I'm not talking about necessarily the Barbary Coast. I'm talking about the concept of humans are animals. Mm. We are wild. and that wildness means that we run with our feelings rather than running with uh, a knowledge of what's right and wrong or good or evil we just do what we want to do with the understanding that this is what I'm going to do and I can get away with it literally there's no uh, elephant herd out there that wear policemen's hat and carry batons to go around knocking heads on the lions the lions should do what they want to do Right, Mm-mm. and this is absolute chaos. This is wilderness talking. Yeah, but we are now humans, or at least we're trying to be, to grow up out of that mentality. Mm-hmm. And so, what we're what we do now is that we start making rules. Mm-hmm. This is actually part of the nesting instinct that, in fact, animals have rules. Yeah. One of the rules is is that if you're a bunch of wildebeest and, and you or others in that wildebeest group sense that there's lions around, then we will follow the rule to go herd together. It's mm-hmm. safer, especially mm-hmm. for the wildebeest who are in the middle of the herd. Mm-hmm. That's what herding mentality is. I've got kind of a joke about it. You know the dog? Uh, the sheepdogs, ones that are really, really sheepdogs, they have them still in uh, uh, New Zealand and other places, but there were sheep being kept in your neighborhood 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that the dogs would herd the sheep. Why? Because the sheep are afraid of the dog because the dog is there barking to make sure that they were afraid of him. 
Therefore, they will herd together. That's the instinct. They're following their sheep rules, okay? Guess what? They are completely controllable because they're in a herd. Yeah. If you know the way to do it, and that's what the dog is doing. And so he'll go around barking and barking and keep getting them in there so that they, he moves the whole herd. He only has to move one thing now, just yeah. one animal. Yeah. Because it's in a herd, and so as he moves it towards the gate, now they're all going to go through the gate because they're all, all trying to get away from the dog. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's American politics right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, suppose there was one sheep or two sheep or maybe a couple of them who had sat down and thought about that dog for a while, and they came up to the idea that, you know something? Every one of us is bigger than that dog. And we know that no one's ever gotten bit by that dog. It just barks a lot. So why don't we form a crowd that, and that what we're going to do is when the dog comes in to start barking, let everybody else go into herd, but we're going to surround the dog. What is a dog going to do when the, when the, uh, the, the big dudes in the tribe of uh, sheep don't want to be herded? They're not going to follow those old rules. Okay, that's a good point for right now. But the point that we're making here is, is that we naturally grew up making rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grew up, not just grew up as children, but we grew up as a species. From the mammalians to the uh, um, uh, apes and the monkeys up to the higher apes into the human being, which is still an ape. If you don't believe me, go outside sometime. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that that still a theory? We don't know that. Isn't that still a theory? We don't actually know that, do we? You don't, we don't know what? Uh, what you just told, what happened in the past. That, 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 we, are, that we are apes? <laughs> no, I can agree with are, that. Are but, you but, questioning but, evolution? Is that what you're questioning yeah, now? The theory, the development theory. Because no, uh, you can see it. It's not. It, it, it yes, it's a theory. But here, in this sense, that it's a theory, the way that scientists use yeah. the word theory, not the way that your average person who yeah, does who thinks they have theories. No, a scientific theory is something yeah. that we can see evidence after evidence demonstrated over and over and over again, with many many different examples. Yes, but still, in the past, it's difficult to know that. Well, we can look at the animal world right now and see goats hurting. Yeah, I mean, but that's uh, now. That's because now. of the, uh, the nesting instinct. We I'm know not... that monkeys live in nests. Yeah. And we know that if a yeah. young monkey is noisy, that he'll get kicked out of that nest and fall to the ground. Yeah. Because the big monkeys in that nest want to have quiet at night. Yeah. And so we I, can also see that when the, when the human tells their kid, if you, this is my house, you do what I tell you to do, or you can go find someplace else to live. Yeah. That yeah. is that nesting, herding instinct. Yeah. 
I, I buy that, but that's in the now. <laughs> but I'm not big on history, but I know the, the context has to be there. And there are, but there are still some kind of assumptions involved, and especially in the development, it's also a power thing going on in which theory wins. Well, um, here's other examples. I, I, if, you can't make a move on. But, <laughs> okay, now, very quickly, birds and fish. Mm -hmm. Birds will flock together. If a gun goes off, they'll all circle, get together, and they'll all go off together. Mm -hmm. Fish school. Oh, Why yeah. do fish school? They do it for danger. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a herding instinct that when there is danger, we tend to collect together. In humans, they call it socialism or society. Mm. Yeah. You've got a degree in this. Yeah, that's why I'm questioning this psychological theory. But it's... I'm, I, can, I don't know about psychology. I'm a sociologist, so I don't get into that. Okay, well... I know my you do recognize sociology, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what we're talking about, is yeah. sociology. Yeah. And part of the sociology, then, eventually, with this rule-making system... Now, as an adult, or uh, as humans, mm -hmm. we have a very complex set of rules yeah. that have built up over time. Yeah. One of these sets of rules we have are these five precepts that came along sometime after the Buddha. Mm -hmm. We also have Ten Commandments. We also have governments, and government's main job is, is to uh, take money from some people and give it to other and make rules about it, mm -hmm. about yeah. who gets the money and who goes to what jail and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's what a government is all about, is to making rules. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point about these rules is to answer that original call of the wild of, I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. The answer is, oh, no, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, what this does is it sets up a psychological, sorry about that, relationship between the kid, I can get away with it, and the parent, oh, no, you can't, I'm going to watch. Yeah. Okay, so now we have the idea of guardians and, and looking out for it. In the old days, there was no issue other than the kid's got to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so the mother will keep the, uh, the little baby animal quiet. Yeah because it's really dangerous out there, especially mm -hmm. when a couple of the old uh, meanies are either slapping her or uh, giving fierce looks. You get that kid quiet or we're going to throw him out of the nest because it's dangerous, okay? That's that hurting instinct, but eventually what that means is the old dudes that are slapping the mom, you got to get that kid quiet. Those are the rule makers. Those are, those are the... They wind up being the politicians and the uh, 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 the the ones who are leaders, the leadership. Yeah. Okay, and us humans normally go along with a leadership because we're instinctually doing that. That's what sociology is all about: is is that people will flock to certain kinds of leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, as leaders and will collect people around him based upon how he can manipulate their instincts. 
Mm-hmm. He can manipulate their instincts by giving them something or promising them something. Mm-hmm. A mule and 40 acres or something. Mm-hmm. Tax breaks. But then the other uh, politician will be skilled in making people afraid. Mm-hmm. We're going to get attacked. Them yeah. black people, they're, they're not as good as you are. Why should you have your tax money supporting them? Mm-hmm. You know? And so these are the ways that uh, governments or politics or leaders in general manipulate. Mm -hmm. Another thing like that we can see with the news is the news is actually in that leadership role trying to manipulate us. And what, why? Because uh, it's been known for a long time that when everybody, when everything is good, everybody's okay and nobody cares. We don't really keep track of what times are good. We only remember the worst. Mm-hmm. That's what history is all about, is telling the stories of the worst things that happened. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do they tell a story about something that, you know, everything's just normal. <laughs> Boring story. Nobody wants those stories. No. No. And so that that whole point then is in the news. Yeah. That uh, and the the phrase would be, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's the sociology of the newspaper. Is they have to have something as a headline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And if they don't have something that they can sell as a headline, they need to find something deeply buried to bring up to the headline so that they can do it. Something like man bikes dog. Mm. Right. So that's the whole point of uh, media and the manipulations and all of the rulemaking. So now let's get right down to it. Basically what I'm now, now pointing out is we've moved out of, wrong view into ordinary right view mm-hmm. and ordinary right view has the hallmark of no we're going to make enough rules so that you can't get away with it mm-hmm. okay and the first kind of rule we're going to make is is that if you do good things you'll get good results and if you do bad things you'll get bad results mm-hmm. the law of comma is a very important quality of uh, ordinary right view This is why the precepts are there in Buddhism or why the Ten Commandments or whatever religion or wherever they came from in the original one was some sort of set of rules that we've got to have to keep a society running. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. if we don't have any rules there, then um, the society is going to fall apart. We've got to have something cohesion. In other words, we have to have some nest rules. If we're going to live in this nest, planet Earth, together, we've got to learn to get along. And that learning to get along, then, is the set of rules that we come up with. This is what we call sila in the Pali. Yeah, okay. Okay? But as children, as we're growing up, we're giving uh, a whole lot of rules. Sometimes uh, um, we find out a rule because we've broken it, and sometimes we find out a rule because we see somebody else get punished because they broke it. And sometimes we figure it out for ourselves, and sometimes we read it out of a book or somebody tells us that. Okay, so these are the ways that we do it. 
and that the rules that we remember the strongest generally are the ones that we got punished for. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we don't necessarily remember them as that we're going to keep them, but generally we do because if we were in the habit of getting away with it, yeah. and then we got caught, that's a different situation than if we just, every time we did it, we got caught. Because that's going to take us out of the wrong view about that particular item. So what I'm talking about now, in many ways, all of the rules that any individual child learns, he learns selectively in various categories that some rules to that child will be important and those rules are not important to other children. So there's a whole lot of complexity in there, but one thing that we do remember or that we do, as I, as I have reflected upon my own childhood, which I used to do quite a lot when I was in the psycho, psychology, um, that we tend to remember the things that were kind of a disaster at, the, at that time. For instance, I remember a treehouse that I had, but I don't ever remember very much us being in the treehouse. But I spent a lot of time in that treehouse. I do remember we building it, and more importantly, I remember falling out of it. Oh. And how I caught the chain of the swing below and and ripped my arm, but at least I didn't have such a terrible landing. But these are the kind of things that we remember. We remember our traumas, but the good times, we just let them roll by and we don't pay much attention. Mm -hmm. So this is another way that we learn how to live in this way that we have built up as a collection of rules that each individual has. And we attach ourselves to this. This is the way that we're supposed to live. Now we're calling that Silabata Paramasa. In the Pali, and it means attachments to a set of rules that each individual makes up for themselves along their way in life. And if we're going to start following the Dhamma, we're going to have to start selectively letting go of those rules. All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're going to take on a new perspective. And that new perspective actually has uh, has a way of transforming all of those rules out of being rules into good ideas or wisdom. Some of the rules we can easily see that that's a ridiculous rule. (laughs) I've been following it my whole life and I don't know why. Now I'm free from it. Or the other ones are saying, yeah, that rule's a really good idea. I can actually see the value in keeping that rule. Mm. And so this is where wisdom begins to come in. And along the way of the wisdom comes what we call now noble right view, which is that third tier, the high class so the low class is, or the child position, I can get away with it. The middle class position is, no, you can't. We're going to make enough rules so that you can't get away with it. Mm-hmm. And then the higher position is, wait a minute, these rules are not going to prevent someone from being either low or uh, ordinary class. If we're going to raise the mind to the high class, 
we have to understand what's going on. We have to take on wisdom, which means investigation. We have to look at what's going on and really see it, what's going on, so that we'll know how to behave in that particular situation. And that includes a lot of information that we may have. So an example of that is, is that if you get stopped by a policeman, a lot of people, when they do, they, they get freaked out. Mm-hmm. They become uptight and nervous and afraid mm-hmm. because of various reasons. But through wisdom, we can recognize that this guy is just in a blue suit doing his job, and he probably needs a friend today. which means that instead of giving him the ordinary dukkha that most people are going to give to a cop Mm -hmm. we're going to be very friendly with him Mm -hmm. hello officer what can I do for you (laughs) okay why do we do that because we can see that that works boy does that work being mm-hmm. kind to officers works. Mm-hmm. Being being afraid of them and halting and uh, that kind of behavior in America can get you killed. Oh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And other places, too, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, we're going now in the direction of noble right view. Let's go back now and take the precepts as an example of a set of rules that we can look through, pick through, and recognize, okay? And that one of the ways, and I'm going to let you in on something, in the right noble view, when the Buddha is discussing the Eightfold Noble Path, he talks about right speech, right action, and right livelihood, And we do this with the understanding of these precepts, at least four of them. But the fifth precept, Suratmerya Machapamatadana Vairamani Sakavadam Samatiyami, which is the one about taking drugs and alcohol, except that it's not about taking drugs at all. It's most specifically alcohol, alcohol, and alcohol. Surya, and Macha are beer, wine, and spirits. And that is what's to be avoided, but that's not in the Eightfold Noble Path, nor is it in any place other than in minor places in the, in the Vinaya. For instance, if a drunk, if a, excuse me, if a monk takes alcohol, and I suppose it doesn't matter how much, he has to confess that to his teacher. It's a confessionable item. But that's all. It's not not at the level of Sangha which means he's got to go around and tell everybody in the temple that he was having alcohol, which is a higher problem. Just take it to your teacher, is confession. Okay. Oh. All right. So, um, but it's really important that we understand that alcohol can be dangerous. But other than that, let's go back and look at these other four. Uh, the um, Atena, no, uh, Panatipata is the first one. Panatipata Vairamani. Now, Pana 
is actually the breath. And so what we're talking about is taking the breath away from animals. This is one of the reasons why uh, uh, Buddhist countries are okay with fish. They're big fish company, countries. Uh-huh. It's because uh, they're absolved of anything about uh, taking the life of breathing animals. Because fish don't breathe insects. Well, maybe they do, but you can't see it. But um, we have a lot of animals. But I know that if people didn't use various pesticides and, and whatnot, there would be a whole lot more of them. But mostly the Thai buildings are built to keep away from the insects. But we do have insects. We have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that uh, we'd have at least three times that many if they weren't actively doing something about it in the Buddhist country to keep the insect life down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the, the, the idea of Panatipata is at various levels. One of possibly the highest level would be to kill a human being, but even higher than that would be to kill a noble. Okay. That even in our society, we have various stratas of quality, mm. uh, and some people get killed and nothing happens. Other people get killed, it's a big up to do, and another guy gets killed and it starts World War One. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these there are these stratas of things, and the question is for your um and this is kind of a later question, but we can ask it now, is at what level? Now that you can see the wisdom in that um precept. Mm. At what level do you want to practice it? Mm. That in fact, uh, I I practice it on a selective level, but mostly I let the insect go. Mm. Sometimes we'll watch a big bug sit there on the wall while the gecko crawls down and snatches it, and I'm not about to stop that procedure. It's actually quite interesting to watch. Yeah. We've got some really big geckos, and they take care of a lot of the insects by themselves. But we can't go around saying, "No, no, gecko, you have to stop <laughs> eating." Because <laughs> that's kind of a ridiculous way of looking at it. And yet, when we push our own morality on others, we wind up with really ridiculous things like that. Like, for instance, Christians being against gays. I have no idea of why. It just makes no sense. But the the fever that they've got into it, I'm uh, I'm well aware of. Mm. <laughs> so um, the next precept then is a tenadana, wegramani sukabadam samatiyami. A tenadana actually means the dana is to give. This is what it's all about. It means to not take things that are not actually given. Mm. Okay? Which means that we actually have to bend and break that rule to go into business. Mm. Okay? Here's an example of that. If you walked into your favorite store 
and picked up a bunch of items and you take it to the checkout center and the guy behind there says, oh, Agnes, I really like you today. You can have all of this stuff free. (laughs) Wouldn't you like that (laughs) if it were given to you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. In fact, if we understand how much joy it is in giving and receiving gifts, then we see there's something wrong with this business model that we've got. Mm -hmm. Because everybody winds up feeling bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this precept is begin to live at the highest level that you can, which means to be generous with everything. This is, in fact, part of the, uh, uh, the rationale of this precept and the way that it's worded is why I would like to see the Dhamma stop being sold. Mm, yeah. Dhamma for dollars. I really like that precept, so that thing so much when I first started learning about Buddhism. That was a big one. It was, wow, can this be happening, you know? Only mm. freely given, it couldn't be sold. It, it's said in the books, and I said, wow, yeah. Well, that's why the book publishers in in uh, the various places that that Robert and I know, for instance, several book publishers here in Thailand and in Taiwan also, and uh, their only interest is in um, uh, shipping. That they will actually publish the books and give them to you free of charge, or at least a very, very low price. For instance, most of Bhikkhu Buddha Das's books are under five dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why we expect to be able to give a lot of them. In fact, um, the idea backfired because uh, Robert and I were saying we should get a bunch of books from uh, Thailand and, and distribute them around to um, places in America, and we know that the best place to put them is in the Watt. And so we, and now Robert and I have been, been in um, close contact with the abbot of the, of the Watt in, in Seattle, and they already have all of Bhikkhu Buddha Das's books, and they're out there giving them away. <laughs> already. Oh. They've got their own supply. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, so if for free books on Buddhism, the place to get them is, is the Watt. Don't go to a bookstore and pay for them. Go to the Watt. They'll give them to you free. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So this is at a tenadana. Now the question is, at what level are we going to practice it? Mm-hmm. This is what now we're beginning to have shades of that doing and non-doing part that you were thinking about. Mm-hmm. That's where this begins to come into play. Mm-hmm. Is it depends upon at what level that you're going to operate. So, for instance, these new headphones that we bought today, Um, I had an actual interesting conversation with this lady and I knew why she was doing what she was and it's natural in Thailand to beg to uh, to barter anyway and so the uh, the actual price was 850 baht Mm -hmm. but by the time that I was ready to go I said well I'm going to go across the street and that's when it got all the way down to seven and then she said 750 and I says okay seven Okay, so this is how, but 
it's all a joy. I mean, she and I were just having a great deal of fun with that. <laughs> and so uh, that's because I've kind of learned the Thai way of, of doing things. Uh, so I don't think that that's like breaking a precept. There would be absolutely no reason for me to try to get those headphones without uh, her compensation. Then, in fact, we can think of buying and selling in this regard, depending upon the way that we're doing, is mutual exchange of gifts. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. It's, because, it's not... Go ahead. Yeah. No, it's not. It seems uh, a lot more there than than uh, at first. It seems very simple, but there's a lot into all of the, this. Yeah, I, I know because <laughs> I've been into this at least forty years and have seen a lot, yeah. learned a lot, mm -hmm. uh, learned <clears throat> learned how to live and be like the Thai people. See, most Westerners, they say 850 baht, do I do it or not? Because that was my first thought. Mm -hmm. Then I, it was her that had decided to start the negotiation of bringing it down. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, most Westerners, then, if she had brought the price down, they would have either said yes or no and stopped. But the fact is, is now it becomes um, a talk, a communication, a chat. A, um, uh, and, and I think that she was happier selling it to me at 700 baht than she would have been if she had sold it at eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we have that quality that's, that's part of the culture uh, here that is generally because of the bigger the store, then the less likelihood that the person you talk to will actually be the owner of the store. Mm. And that's what uh, Thailand is really all about, is everybody's uh, a merchant on their own. Mm. And so, the um, this, especially out on the streets, I mean, I could have gone into, uh, well, not here on this island, but in Bangkok, there are big stores like Robinson and, and Tesco, and they have all kinds of electronics in the big Tesco's and that kind of stuff. But it's always fixed price, and the people who are in there, they don't care whether you buy anything or not. Mm, yeah. Their job is, in fact, to, I've got to go in the back and pull out a new TV and bring it up here if you take this one out the door. Mm. Or worse still, I've got to go get the TV we're actually going to sell you out of the back. Mm. And you don't get this one. <laughs> but in any case, the, uh, the guy in the store then is not really getting any benefit. He's got to work when the sale is made to where this lady on the street was overjoyed mm. with the communication that we had together. Mm. Yeah. All right. So um, we're beginning to see that these precepts have a way of changing our way of, of viewing to the world, that we begin to uh, look at, at animals almost as up to the level of equality with humans. Mm. That if these are breathing, living animals, 
then they suffer uh, physical pain and often emotional pain when they are uh, when something goes against their instincts. They're going to have feelings about that, mm-hmm. just like humans do. The only difference between a human and a dog is the human's got this frontal cortex to where we can think of things. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I really noticed again about Lucky today is, is that whatever I'm doing, she wants to sniff it. She mm-hmm. wants to know basically, you know, is it edible or not? Mm-hmm. But that's the only thing that she cares about because she's at, uh, driven at that level. But she really does like to get right in and she's really a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this whole instinctual system, they have that. But the only difference that we have is this human part. But other than that, we... Uh, Animals do grieve. I have seen that. But they won't grieve long. Mm-hmm. But they do have a grief process they go through uh, when, they, when they lose a companion. Um, I remember that with Pumpui when uh, uh, Taxin died. That for a few days that she was out of it also. Mm-hmm. She missed him. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we have to understand then at that level, maybe we can bring our standards down to a level to where we begin to uh, notice that everything has a quality of life to it. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people are beginning to go vegetarian more and more. It seems to have uh, notched up a level, especially now that um, many of the companies have come up with something that looks and tastes like beef but is in fact vegetable. Yeah. But then we have the other side of the story, and that is this tree right here is my one of my best friends. I talk about him all the time. Got nice leaves. And uh, I would be as sad about having that tree gone as uh, one of the animals here in the house. So... Uh, we, we look at it from that perspective that, uh, that because we stay alive, we consume part of the reality that we're in Mm. and that that's what these two rules then are about is what standard of living do you want to choose for yourself Mm. based upon the issues about generosity and, uh, giving versus uh, taking. Now, the way that the Buddha talked about meat was like this, that he took what was given him, that if someone wanted to give him something to eat that was against some ideal rule, then he would not be uh, doing generosity. The Buddha himself would never kill an animal, but that doesn't mean that he does not consume meat. Because someone gave him that food. Well, we can also look at that in the sense of buying and selling that the product is already going to be there. Mm -hmm. And so the real issue is how was the animal treated when it was alive and how was it killed is much, much more important than I shouldn't eat meat because of a rule about taking breath away from living animals. Mm. 
because these are actually your rules for you to learn to live by. You are not, please don't, walk into the avatar or to the meat processing facility and shut it down. It's not your business. (laughs) 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 But that's their business, and they have to deal with all of the problems that they have in their business, but that's their business, and we have to recognize that that's not our business. Mm. We can't go around telling other people how to behave Mm. about the rules that we're trying to learn how to keep for ourselves so that we can become noble. In fact, going around telling other people what to do is not noble. (laughs) (laughs) And in speaking of that, let's move on then to the third one, which is Musa Wada. Musa, actually you can see Wada with the with a V versus a W, Musa Vada or vocal. Musa means false voice or false speech. Now, what we mean by false speech, um, according to the the sutta that we're referring to, and by the way, all of the stuff that I'm really dealing with comes out of the sutta uh, number 117 out of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Great Forty, mm-hmm. when we're talking about how to gain one's right view. Because how we gain one's right view then determines how we're going to manage these precepts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so Musawada and um, um, we've, called, we've generally talked about right action. Is The only one that we missed on right action it would be sexual misconduct. And what we mean by sexual misconduct is, is that we hurt someone or ourselves in the act of our sexual conduct. So, for instance, a man is not going to go to another woman because he knows if she knew it, she would feel bad. And so he's going to abstain from setting up a situation to get caught so that he's going to uh, have to deal with his wife. But there are all kinds of other sexual contact that is of mutual benefit. So this is the um, uh, the way of looking at it: is uh, uh, the sexual activity that we engage in is it harmful to someone? Generally, to a third party, but often uh, when guys are out on the make, they'll love you and leave you, you know, and then broken hearts all around. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a that's a kind uh, of um, uh, uh, misconduct because we 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 hurt people. We uh, we want things and we take them. Uh, in fact, you can think of that one is the place where people most likely are going to fall into wrong view, in the sense of I can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, you don't get away with it because we are, we're harming people. Yeah. And, and the, the, difference, the difference from celibacy, the, the monks, are they, they're, they're living in? The, okay, if you want to go into that, I would say that 
the Buddha set these rules because of other issues other than what we're talking about. Just like the Catholic Church had other issues. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with the Catholic Church's other issues, and then we'll get into the Buddhist other issues. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other issues that the Catholic Church had was is that uh, if a priest was married, then he could legitimately uh, uh, will his son the property that belonged actually to the church, according to the church. Mm-hmm. So if you could prevent the priest from getting married, then any children that they did have would be illegitimate and therefore could not be heirs to the property. And that the Catholic Church automatically gets that property. That's the whole point of... Uh, in a way, they were telling priests in the 11th century what is turned around to bite them this time in the 21st century, and that is do what you will, just get away with it. Oh. Mm. Yeah. And that was that was happening big time. I think one of the best examples was, um, uh, gosh, I forget his name. His last name was Borgia. He was Alexander the Sixth. He uh, was in power from the late uh, fourteen, like fourteen sixty, fourteen seventy, up to the time. In fact, it was he that Martin Luther was so adamantly against. Mm-hmm. He had a daughter, Lucretia Borgia, who helped him poison other popes so that he could become pope. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. And then he got his own army going and all of the indulgences and everything like that. But basically, he was one who could, in fact, get away with it. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther was the one, but he didn't because it caused a 130 years war or maybe a 100 years war. Mm-hmm. pretty bloody in Europe, uh, especially in Germany. I think you know all about it. That's why that Northern Europe is, in fact, Protestant is because of Martin Luther yeah. being angry at this dude who thought he would get away with it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not big on history. I, I, I don't really know much about this. Martin Luther, I know, I heard of, but I don't really have much. I, never mind. It's a good story. Yeah. You can see that this is the whole idea that we cannot get away with things and that in this case it was a lot to do with sexual misconduct Mm -hmm. that we have to understand that no we have to be wise about what we're doing we have to make sure that we do cover all of the bases and in some societies that does mean that you do need to get a formal document from the government or whatnot like that because if you don't have all the right paperwork Later, it's going to cause some people some trouble. Yeah. So this is this is all wrapped up with with that. And sexual misconduct doesn't necessarily mean just sex, mm-hmm. but it means the kind of conduct that we have when we go around hurting other people. Mm-hmm. Normally, because we're acting very selfishly, we want, we want, we want, and one of the things that we're most likely to do that on is in in sexuality, thinking we can get away with it. Okay, so now that we're back to, down to the Musawada, um, this one has a, has the quality of if we're going to abstain from doing those kind of things, now we're also going to begin to abstain from these things verbally. Mm-hmm. 
which means that we're not going to do any backbiting. Mm-hmm. Or we're not going to be doing things like bait and switch, but that's more of a right livelihood. But in general, uh, there are four qualities of uh, right speech. One of them is telling a deliberate lie. Again, this has to do with how much trouble that it's going to cause. Sometimes telling a deliberate lie would be the easy way out, but many times we can avoid answering the question rather than telling a deliberate lie. Mm-hmm. Politicians are really good at that. Yeah. You, can, you can ask them a really detailed, exact question, and you don't hear anything about it on their response. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about something else altogether. Okay, so we don't really have to answer questions with a deliberate lie if telling the truth is going to be harmful, but we can't avoid uh, the subject. We can get away from it, move on to other things. Uh, now, that sometimes that's not possible, but an example that I have is the Gestapo is knocking on the Jew's door banging the door when it opens, do you have any Jews in here? You know, mm-hmm. how is the lady going to respond to that? Because if she says, yes, uh, the, all of the people in the rafters and the uh, floorboards of her house are going to get arrested. Mm-hmm. So what she's going to do then is to sit down and offer the captain or the lead guy, let your guys look around here in Plum, let's sit down and have uh, a chat together. And now if I just happen to have it, I've got a young uh, 16-year-old girl's photo that I can, uh, this is my niece. Mm. I I would like to introduce her to you, okay? You get this guy's mind off of why he's here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so in a minute or two, he's going to say, okay, guys, time to go. There's nothing here. And off we go. You know, and you never answered the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of um, beginning to use white speech mm-hmm. as the abstaining from wrong speech. That's an important point that we'll get to uh, in greater detail. But the next one after direct lying would be uh, malicious gossip, and that's where Mr. A tells Mr. B how bad Mr. C is in the hopes that Mr. B will start to uh, separate from Mr. C. Uh, Eric Byrne had those games named when he talked about it. He's got two of them. One is, let's pull a fast one on Joy. And the other one is, let's you and him fight. Hear that? Let's you and him fight. Mm. That's malicious gossip. Mm. We go in and we tell something. It may even be true what you're saying about C, but you're trying to convince Mr. B Mm -hmm. to to be dissatisfied Mm. with Mr. C. That's malicious Mm. gossip. But if you have the kind of gossip to where A and B are actually trying to comfort or help Mr. C, then that's not malicious gossip. That's not wrong speech. Okay. But be careful because it can easily fall into wrong speech. So the next one then would be uh, harsh speech. And this is one of my favorite topics. 
Because in the United States, they seem to think that certain words are harsh, no matter what their context. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not talking about it like that. We're not talking about uh, the kind of words that uh, George Garland would have a nice routine about. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can remember it. But he's talking about harsh in the sense of talking to someone in a harsh way. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I see that on the Internet quite a, way, quite a lot, that people are quite harsh with each other. Mm. Mm. And so these are the wrong kinds of, uh, of, of speech. The other kind of speech that would be considered would be uh, frivolous. But we also have to understand what that means, because sometimes frivolous speech has the quality of bonding friendship. So I would say that in this case, the frivolous speech would be the kind of speech that goes in the direction of malicious gossip. When we're just talking about the world or talking about that place out there or or whatever, just uh, unmindful chitter chatter. Mm-hmm. which is beyond the, ca- the realm of um, ritual, because there is ritualized speech, which is okay. We do a little ritual, you and I. In fact, every student, when we come on to Skype, we do a little ritual. I guess I'm, I'm starting to learn that now <laughs> a little. I'm not, I'm uh-huh. not rules and, and rituals at Well, all. an example of those little rituals is, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. Are but, you okay? Yeah, but I, I don't think I even ask that. I'm too absorbed in my own, th- own thing. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Another, yeah. One, another one in that line would be good to see you. So yeah. these are the kind of little rituals that we put in, yeah. which are harmless. In fact, not only are they harmless, but they help bond people together. Yeah. This, this is an initial ritualization that we have as human beings. They begin to talk about uh, us being unified together or in the same nest. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's sort of like that coming together. Yeah. The same thing is with handshaking. That people shake each other's hands to basically to prove that I've got no um, axe or dagger in my hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a long time ago, isn't it? <laughs> but that's how long we've been shaking hands. Yeah. I don't like to shake hands either, but but I do it when I have to. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, now that coronavirus is out there, yeah. maybe we should change to the Asian it, meeting, which is yes, the why. that's a lot better. Because yeah. it's the same thing. That's that introductory ritual. And it's yeah. different in each, each country where they say different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sawati Cup and all of these Thai phrases that they have mm-hmm. is part of that ritualized greetings that we have that brings us together in unity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. If that ritual is not properly done, more than likely it'll be a, either only business or frivolous. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of things that we're looking for to kind of avoid. Mm -hmm. Okay, especially meditators, we don't just get into chats with people. Mm -hmm. 
when I'm when I'm in 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 chats with people, generally we don't record it, but it's still some sort of dhamma business. But it's a good idea to record them when we're actually doing dhamma. So this is this is dhamma. This is not necessarily frivolous, though it sure does feel good anyway. <laughs> All right. So now let's move away from these rules as a set of rules that are part of ordinary right view. And you can also see that these are quite fundamental. Yeah. Oh, one of the things that I didn't clear up, let me go back and do that a little bit more, because I only did it on the Christian side, and that is on the Buddhist side, yeah. what is for celibacy, what are the extra set of rules, or what's really going on, what's the background behind it? Yeah. I was just going to ask about that. I started thinking about, yeah. <clears throat> okay. The reason why that is there is mainly for freedom's sake. Mm -hmm. Because in the time of the Buddha, as well as most places throughout the earth, that a marriage ceremony had to do more with business than it did with the heart. That this was a business deal between the two daddies, mainly. Yeah. Okay, and it didn't matter which direction the money was going. That's actually just part of the uh, uh, the local culture. That mm -hmm. in Thailand originally it was a it was a two way deal. In other words, my my boy and all of this stuff, and this girl and all of her daddy's stuff is going to come together, and then the kids get all of this stuff, and that would be including gold and land and whatnot. But when the Chinese invaded Thailand a hundred and nearly 180 years ago during the Opium Wars, that began to change because the Chinese came in with money but without women. And so they wanted to start buying the Thai wives. And that upset the culture in Thailand quite a bit in certain areas, but not everywhere. Okay, so that's an interesting point about that issue of celibacy is who owns what. Yeah. Because if you maintain uh, an independence to where you're not going around doing sexual misconduct in the sense of harming others by lying or, or whatever or doing that kind of stuff, it's actually superior to, to stay out of that kind of behavior, to leave it alone. Okay, so that's one side of it. The other side of it was that it was also already part of the Brahmin culture, that certain Brahmins would be celibate, or not celibate, but they would be... Uh, um, the Pali word is abrahmacharya, which means actually to live like a god, which means to live above uh, sexual desire and also sensual desire or sexual desire in the West um, they have become interdependent and interrelated but the issue is strongly on the sexual side to where in um, the Pali and the way that it's actually looked at is, is that materialism is possibly the heavier issue. But both of them have to do with ownership and control of something outside the body. 
Okay, how much property and how much goods and cattle and people I own versus how many wives do I own uh, is an issue that's going to keep someone from being able to be free from all of that stuff. That's quite a bondage, quite a, quite a burden. There's a lot of kids to take care of if you've got a lot of wives. So you can see where if one who does already because he's young and comes to the teaching of the Buddha, if he's going to join the Buddhist order, that means he's actually leaving the world and leaving the wife. But if you leave your wife, you better make sure that she's well taken care of. Yeah. Okay, like uh, if her if her family had a lot of money, then make sure that she's back with her family, because there is one episode where the Buddha actually chastised a monk, but he didn't make him disrobe, because while the monk was uh, out on Bendabad, out and about, his wife came to him and said, "Please, before you go off into the woods, I need a child. Please get me pregnant." And so he did. Mm-hmm. And then the Buddha found out about it later. Okay. And so that's the big question is, should he have gone and impregnated his wife or not? I think that if upon the situation, I would say, mm, I'm not sure about that. Let's just forget about the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Rather than making it now, that's, that's going to be the new rule from now on is, is that no... We don't go back and visit the wives after we've come to uh, stay with the guys. Mm. Now, I also noticed that homosexuality was never mentioned anywhere that I know of. But it tends to not be a main issue because the homosexuals, for instance, in Thailand would not seek to join the church to try to get rid of their uh, or deal with their sexuality, they've got too many other places to go. Mm-hmm. Gay, gay life is actually open in India also. They even have once a year a great big festival Okay. where all of the guys who are in the closet will come out and dress up and be a gay and nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's not the same way in Christian culture. In Christian culture, gays have um, um, kind of a problem. So by by and large, gays in the uh, Sangha is, is not much of an issue. Okay. But what we're talking about is duty to the Dhamma as opposed to duty to one's family. It's possible for them to do both. The, the Buddha had a number of householders who were just as devoted. Some of them were teaching Dhamma. There's a couple of them, in fact, that are well known to be good Dhamma teachers. Um, that uh, one of them was famed for going around kind of as a surrogate for the Buddha to go in places where the Buddha himself didn't or wouldn't go and could teach the Buddha's teaching so well that he made many, many converts. Mm-hmm. That he just nailed it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and he was layman as well as many other laymen by the thousands. That in fact, the advice to laymen is to give all of the household duties over to the wife, mm-hmm. so that she 
decides what house we live in and what gets done and uh, what clothes kids wear and what school they go to and what cars we buy and what furniture we have and what clothes I wear. All of that kind of stuff is up to the wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what does that lead me to do? Dhamma. Yeah, but what about the women? Can they do dharma too? And the man taking care of all of those? Well, it's easier for you to do that alone, just as you are. You can yeah. live dharma. If yeah. you were married, you would have, you know what kind of extra duties you would have if you were married. You mm. have real freedom if you stay single. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> you have, this has been well known throughout history. Sorry about all of you married people who know about this. But freedom yeah. is best had when you are absolutely free. Yeah. And so, so the way to do that is by giving the wife all of the duties so that you can be free. But if you don't have a wife to give them to or a husband, then you were already free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I discovered that 20 years ago. <laughs> so now we're looking at that other side of it. It's not thou shalt not have sex. Mm. It is not that kind of issue. Mm. It has to do more with uh the responsibilities and the uh, the lifestyle that living that way assumes to have real freedom one either uh, has to just be free and on one's own or one has to take that second more difficult journey of figuring out how to let your partner have complete control Okay. Yeah. And that the only time that we have control back again is when we ask for it and it's granted. And then, but it only lasts for five, ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so if wife says you go to the hospital, guess what? <laughs> You're going to the hospital whether you want to or not. <laughs> and that has been such a blessing, such a relief of the giving that away to let her have 100% responsibility. And you know that works perfectly well here in Thailand. It's a matriarchal society. In fact, this precept that I'm talking about is in, in the sutta, in the Ding and the Kaya. Mm -hmm. Which one? Uh, 31, mm -hmm. where it says that the householder should give all the duties of the household to the wife. So that he's completely free to do the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. But that, uh, in this regard, it has to look at, wait a minute, we got to really know what a householder is. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a bum. Because a bum, we just want him to join the Sangha. Mm -hmm. But a householder is someone who actually owns property okay. and holds a place. It's not just the house, but he's a holder of property. And he's going to give all the duties of that property over to someone else. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a farm, they may need a, 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 um, a boss and workers. That's still done completely by the wife. The guy, uh, 
you see, this is hard to pull off in the West because uh, giving everything to the wife means she's got to do all the income. Mm. The guy's going to just sit at home and do nothing. Mm. All right. Well, that's not going to work in many places in the States. <laughs> Get up off that button. You go to work. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But in the situation like in Thailand or uh, when the finances are, are not the issue, that the wife can, in fact, do that duty. And guess what? You know this deep in your heart that if you had that kind of relationship, you would prefer that to having to, to haggle and annoy and uh, deal with your husband on a regular basis. Right? You yeah. just rather him give you complete control and you can do whatever you want to do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's I what that... I would recommend about that for the householder because that fits in with that issue of um, freedom. It's not yeah. really an issue of sexuality so much. I don't really like telling people what to do, actually. I know Dhamma dudes don't like telling other people what to do because we recognize through our own wisdom we don't like being told what to do. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it usually doesn't end well in my experience. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, does it? That's also <laughs> the same thing with righteous anger. We think that because I'm angry that I've got a right to be angry and therefore I am right and therefore my anger is righteous and I've got a right to be angry, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. No. Anger is always a disadvantage. It is always ill will. It is always non-friendly, and it is always a failure. And it's also very painful. And it is myself. always painful, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So there's no reason to try to justify righteous anger. Well, there's no reason to justify um, trying to haggle to a relationship no. that we really need if you're going to be uh, in the Dhamma is to kind of work with the Dhamma that way in the sense of, yeah, I'm in a relationship, but let's give it on to the wife. Let's let her deal with everything. Mm. <laughs> so now we're going in the direction of nobility. Mm -hmm. That, that the, the wisdom is, okay, so that we're not now seeing the precepts as a set of rules mm -hmm. but rather we're seeing them now at a noble level which has a completely different viewpoint and that is is that because the mind is noble because the mind is unified we don't want to kill anything we don't want to um take things from people knowing that that would put them at a disadvantage. Yeah. We don't um, engage in speech that is harmful to mm. others. Mm. Naturally. Yeah. Because the mind is unified. Mm. In other words, if I don't want anything, then I'm not going to go out taking anything. Yeah. If I'm not angry at somebody, I'm not going to hurt him. Mm. 
if I'm not full of lust about some nice young thing or nice old thing, whatever, <laughs> then I'm unlikely then to go out and pursue it, including all of the dangers and missteps that could be had that will cause suffering. That if I'm I'm okay, I can like her, she's beautiful, but I don't have to pursue her. Mm. I don't have to go after it. This yeah. is now at that noble level where we don't really want anything. Our precepts come naturally. Mm. That this is the right way of looking at them. Now they're no longer precepts. They're part of the Eightfold Noble Path or a better way of saying it. This is the result oh. of the Eightfold Noble Path. Mm. Okay. Because the Eightfold Noble Path is now based upon wisdom. And with the other factors of the Eightfold Noble Path, in fact, we've really been hammering right now on right view. Yeah. Noble right view is the right view of keep looking at what's going on. And with that and the other factors, the mind becomes unified and whole. What is that? Right sati, right effort, and right attitude. Those three things, together with one's right view, run in circle around each other to the point of unifying the mind. If we keep practicing this, and the way we practice it is through Anapanasati. Okay, so now we begin to investigate this detail about doing versus non-doing. Because what we're really talking about is an action that leads to the end of action. As opposed to just trying to stop doing that action. Now, one of the ways of doing uh, is uh, doing that uh, brings doing to an end is by doing something new rather than something old. Okay, what is the something old is the hindrances. What's the something old is what a person is already doing for most of his life, which is in fact out wanting things and therefore we're breaking precepts left, right, and the other. So now we're going to substitute in the mind a new kind of doing. And that new kind of doing is the doing of, aha, I see you, wanting to do something. Okay. I see you. Okay. And so now the next part of doing would be to relax and to take a deep breath mm -hmm. and become satisfied with this moment. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of doing that leads to the end of doing is becoming satisfied. Mm -hmm. If I'm completely satisfied right now, there is nothing to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so this is how we practice over and over and over again. How do we come to a state of non-doing? Mm. We do it by getting ourselves into a state of satisfaction so that we're satisfied with the way things are. Uh, yeah. And mm. then doing kind of falls away. So mm. that state of satisfaction then is what we're looking for. Mm. This is actually part of the Anapanasati Sutta and it's also part of First jhana. Yeah. Basically, what we're talking about is, can you get yourself into first jhana and just stay that way your whole life? Mm -hmm. Happy and joyful and not, not a care in the world. Mm 
Watching every minute, okay? Enjoying everything that's going on. This is the state that we're looking for. Yeah. It's getting into that state. It takes over and over again because it's so easy to fall back out of it. Mm. Back into doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but that doing is automatic. Oh. Why is it automatic? It's automatic because the habits for it and the energy and the instinctual power is already there. Mm -hmm. And so that stuff will come up whenever some trigger or another is pulled. The Buddha talks about that in, in the term that we use, adventious defilements. Now, what we mean by adventious is, is that they will take an opportunity or they will take advantage. Yeah. An example of that is, is that if the, uh, if the, the valve uh, is not fully closed, then the water in the pipe will take an advantage to drip. Mm. Yeah. Okay, it'll take that little bit of advantage that's there. Okay, mm. so this, this is how we come to a state of non-doing is by coming into that state of non-doing over and over and over again. It's quite a doing. It's so much doing that the Buddha calls it right effort. Yeah. Right effort is the doing that brings about non-doing. And it happens almost immediately. I mean, this is within one or two seconds. We're not talking about long-term non-doing. They're talking about right now non-doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if you have the skill of not doing right now, you'll have that skill the next time you need to or think about, I want to be in non-doing. Right, here we are. <laughs> yeah. It's also about discovering what leads to that specific thing one is doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is the investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this this has been a wonderful talk. I really enjoyed it. I hope that you've gotten your question answered. Yeah, it's it's amazing how how well answered it was. Everything, I, I, how how things can keep falling into place from different perspectives. Yeah, it, it really makes sense. Yeah, but every time I I ask you something, it seems to I I get so much more of an answer than I could ever ever think of. So it's thank you so much. Excellent, excellent, yeah. Agnes. We'll see you later. We, yeah, I want to talk about your writing someday too. Yeah, yeah. So enjoy. I'll I'll, I'll do, perhaps next weekend or so. I'm I'm doing okay. what I can. So yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.